South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. The following program is recorded and aired on previous dates. All right. Back to gardening here on a nice Saturday morning out there. Looks like my next two callers are going to be James and Jim. <laughs> I have to keep that straight very carefully. So, uh... Ah, I tell you what, let's just, uh, let me tell you one thing real quickly, just a couple of events that you might want to know about today, or this evening, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, one of them takes place up in San Marcos, and that is uh, what they call the hangar dance, and I don't know about you, I was always fascinated, as of course the previous generation, uh, some of my family served in World War II, but uh, the aircraft, I mean, that's, that, that is just a fascinating deal, and that's what, they used to call it the Confederate Air Force, now they call it the Command. Commemorative Air Force, but uh, it's a bunch of guys and gals that are dedicated to maintaining, restoring, and even flying these vintage aircraft. And anyway, they put on what they call a hangar dance up in San Marcos, in amongst the uh, <laughs> the wonderful planes up there. And it's uh, it's tonight. Uh, you can go to www.hangardance.org if you want to get more information, or there's actually a phone number if that sounds like something might be fun for you. Seven three seven. That's area code seven three seven two eight five. 0015-737-285-0015, and uh, quite an event. The other one place that where I plan to be for at least part of the evening is the Cadelia Volunteer Fire Department. They're getting back to having their big enchilada dinner here on the first weekend of hunting season. That's always uh you know, always what they do. They took a couple of years off for COVID, but uh, it's a it's a neat deal and uh, some absolutely fantastic food. And that takes place up at the Candelia Firehouse this evening. They're going to start serving about 5:30, and then of course they have a, a live auction. They have raffles. They have all sorts of things going on. Uh, talk to my friend Veronica Kest and uh, their corporation. They've actually built an 18 foot, 16 foot, I guess 16 foot uh, open trailer, flatbed trailer. I'm just sitting here thinking I may even go bid on that. But anyway, if you're looking for something to do this fun to do this evening that's a little closer to home up at Candelia, you're supporting a great cause when you're supporting the Candelia Volunteer Fire Department. So now, having said that, let's uh, let's get back to the phone lines. And uh, James is first. Good morning, James. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing this morning? Well, I'm doing very well, sir. How about yourself? Oh, pretty good after that nice rain we had last night. Uh, <laughs> either you're dreaming or you were under a different cloud I, I mean i sat there and watched it i knew it wasn't going to come over us but man the clouds were beautiful last night it was starting to get dark that big old bank of clouds in the east and lightning just flickering just a constant light show up there but as usual we were totally dry did you actually get any rain or was that all imaginary yeah it was coming out of the south man uh, yeah. It was blowing out of the south. Uh, go figure. But anyway, yep. it, uh, it was a real nice rain. Really? Uh, oh, man, it, there's water in the ditches. Golly. Well, it, those clouds weren't as far away as I thought they were. From Looking at it from, uh, from the hill country, it looked like they were a little further away. But I guess our turn will come soon, I hope. Yeah, it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous, so everybody's getting a chance to rain, boys and girls. Yep. I called to ask you if you're cutting broccoli yet. No, I haven't. I'm late getting stuff in. Uh, life's just been busy. Uh, we've got we've been doing a bunch of uh, kind of I won't say remodeling, but 
rebuilding projects around the nursery. We've got a lot of old things that we built 20 years or so ago that just not in the best shape. So uh, I've been I've been playing carpenter as much as I've been playing nurseryman, and then I hadn't left much time left over for home gardening. But uh, people that got the broccoli in back when I told them to plant it rather than when I do it uh, probably get pretty close. How about you? Yeah, we're starting to cut and sell uh, sell a little bit. Uh, I just wanted to tell everybody that uh, the sooner you you get that uh, main uh, main head off there, the sooner you start getting side shoots, man. That's oh yeah, what it's all about. Oh yeah. And what what are your favorite varieties on broccoli now? Um, we've been doing uh, Emerald Crown from uh, Johnny's for the last four or five years and it seems to be working just fine that's good that's good so they much of what they're organic, okay they an organic uh broccoli that's working pretty good i can't remember the name of it but that emerald crown gets his cheese that gets gets big you gotta you know at least three foot between plants wow i've got to look for that one i I don't know that one. I'm still doing, gosh, I wish they still had Green Comet, but Green Magic is one of the ones that I usually grow. But I'm going to look at Johnny's and see Emerald Crown. Sounds real good. Yeah, we've been having real good luck with it. It uh, it comes on strong and, and, and goes and goes. The side shoot production is pretty good, and that's what, um, that's what, you know, that's my thing. I like the side. Oh, yeah. Shoots. Yeah, me too. And and that's what the blasted so many of the breeders are, you know, they're they're just after the commercial market. And the commercial guy doesn't give a, doesn't give a hoot about uh, side shoots uh, because they just want to harvest that big old crown in the middle and sell it to HEB or whatever and pull it up and start again. But those of us that want to keep harvesting, when you get a good variety that will continue, and, and granted, the, the little heads get smaller and smaller over time but you can with broccoli you can continue to harvest it for six or eight weeks and uh, uh that's what i always look for is is one of them that does produce the side shoots so uh uh it's good to know that's, that's a good new variety to be looking for well the, the only thing you need to know to grow broccoli is fertilizer and water <laughs> you know you can't it's, <laughs> it's a bog plant man well I, I'll add one more to that, and that is uh, cabbage looper control because broccoli, it, it's not as bad as cabbage, but those little green worms sure do like to get after it. And uh, I always spend a lot of time telling people that sometimes those worms will get down into the head as well as on the foliage. And when I uh, when I pick broccoli, I dump it into a saltwater bath for a few minutes and uh, all those little worms let go and come floating up to the surface surface because i've never done it but i've heard of uh friends who cooked up their broccoli and somewhere in the middle of the meal somebody sliced that hope how that, that head open and pound a little parboil worm down in the middle of it so uh, that's just a hint to anybody that might have not gotten all your loopers under control little salt water soak will get them to come up and out of it where you don't have to worry about serving your dinner guests a little unexpected protein yeah that spinosad soap is the way to go uh if you yep. want to attack them uh those cabbage worms man that works really well yeah uh, did i mention that i had uh pin worms starting in the poop house on the tomatoes 
I believe you mentioned that last week. Yes, sir. What are you doing to combat them? Uh, I went up and down a couple of times with the spin of sad soap, and that's all yep. history. That's, that, that's, uh, that's, that's one of my, gotten to be my favorite go-to product. I used to, used to use a little bit more neem, but compared to neem, neem has such a short shelf life. And uh, I've just found that, and, and I like the spinosad soap much better than the straight spinosad. Straight spinosad was, you know, good for killing caterpillars and ants and <clears throat> a lot of stuff. But it seems to me that that spinosad soap has greatly increased the effectiveness of it. And uh, whether, you, whether you buy it in that little ready-to-spray bottle or whether you buy it in a ready-to-use hand sprayer or whether you buy the concentrate and mix it yourself... Uh, you gotta you gotta mix it reasonably strong, but it's one of the safest things, and I still think one of the best things you can use. And it'll get it'll get the worms, uh, caterpillars. You got to get it on them. But we've also found it to be super effective against spider mites and mealy bugs and just about everything the gardener's likely to see. I buy it by the quart. Yeah. So um, I talked to Luke last time. I talked to Luke up at Compost Tea Labs. Uh huh. He said he'd be happy to get on the radio with you guys and talk compost tea. If that's something you guys might be interested in. I, you know, I don't do, other than Howard Garrett, I really don't do much in the way of interviews because I hate for people to have to hold on, hang on hold for so long. But uh, we might see if we can find a way to, to do a little segment. Maybe if there's a week that Howard's going to be out of town, I could get with Luke and uh, let him do our little 8 o'clock interview that time. So uh, I'll, uh, I'll we'll, we'll look at that at some point in the future. Okay, Bob. Well, thanks a lot, and I hope you get some rain. Well, I appreciate it, and uh, I do, too. They're giving us a fair chance again this next week, so we'll keep our fingers crossed. And uh, you get out and have a good weekend, James. It's always good to hear from you. Uh, Jim, let me get a break in here so I don't get behind, and you will be up next. A couple of open lines. Grab one if you like, 210-599-5555. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. We're going to talk to Jim and then to Ethan. And right after the next break, I'm going to tell you about what's coming up next weekend. And that's Green Spaces Alliance Nature Fest. And that's going to be a great uh, great event as well. But back to the phone lines for a while here first. Jim is next. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Bob. Uh, I live about uh, 10 miles northeast of Bernie, uh, okay. at 474. And yeah. I didn't get a drop this week, even though I was promised a half an inch. I got fifteen hundred <laughs> on uh, last Sunday, but yeah. the forecast always tells me I'm going to get rain, and then it just kind of disappears out of the forecast as you get We closer. we we call it living in the donut hole. I mean, the rains go north of us, south of us, east of us, west of us. I can't believe that James and he's over there in the Cibolo, uh, yeah, kind of the Cibolo Marion area. And uh, I don't know if you were out after dark last night, but the clouds to the east were just beautiful and loaded with lightning. But I thought it was further away than that. But once again, you know, there was a little bit of mist on my windshield, but uh, nothing. When you're looking up at uh, beautiful stars overhead, you know your chances of getting rain are not going to be too good. That's what yesterday evening was like. You know, it was a, a really heavy band of rain as it went, as it, you know, continued up toward 
Austin, but we got yep. the little tail and it just didn't happen. Oh yeah, and it didn't even it didn't even form until it was past us. So, uh, but my old buddy Alton Grimm used to always say, "Every day we're one day closer to that next good rain." I I just yeah. wish it would hurry up and get here. <laughs> no kidding. Hey, I, I was down at the coast, and there's a really pretty shrub, perennial shrub. But well, it's kind of tall, and it grows like crazy. And I got my app out on my phone, and it said it was a yellow trumpet flower and um it has little bitty black fruit that comes off of it barrel shaped looks kind of like a little raspberry and then it also has these dried beans and i was trying Mm -hmm. to figure out well which one's the seed and how could i take some of this stuff and plant it and would it work in the hill country tell me tell me what the foliage looks like uh, that name doesn't mean anything to me. That sounds like a made-up common name. But tell me, uh, oh. uh, is it? does it have, uh, oh, we call them pennately compound leaves, leaves that look kind of like, uh, oh, like a, a mesquite or like something that has multiple little leaflets on it, or are they more individual um, kind of oval leaves? Uh, more individual oval leaves. Okay, and how and, big are the? They, oh, they're a couple of inches uh, okay. in diameter, I would think. And they're a good, they're a good uh, medium yellow color. Uh, the the leaves the leaves are green. Yeah, but the the flowers are medium yellow. Yes, I think so. Yeah. I I look up Alamanda, A-L-L-A-M-A-N-D-A. I was down at the coast. I was actually down in South Padre uh, uh, celebrating another trip around the sun about three weeks ago and saw a lot of them in bloom down there. And uh, they're beautiful plants, but they won't do it in the hill country. They're too cold sensitive. Um, they're oh, okay. great. They're related to mandevillas, uh, and, and they're just they're a tropical bush that can bloom practically 12 months out of the year. But being tropical, they get real unhappy when the temperature gets to 30 degrees or below. So uh, um, I, I'm afraid I'm going to have to nix that one. Now, good yellow flowers, there are compact esperanzas that will do really well. And then there are some of the things in the cassia family that uh, oh, go by a bunch of different names that have kind of a pea-like flower that's bright yellow. And they make uh, a bean-like seed pod, which is what uh, where I thought you might be going with it, but the leaves are totally different on that. And uh, even the cassias are borderline, but um, yeah, I, I think what you're looking at is alamanda. Yeah, th- well, this did have the little fruit that dropped up, and it did have a bean-like seed pod also hanging on it that was drying up, and and I was trying to figure out which one the seed was. But this stuff, you can cut it to the ground, and mm-hmm. a month later, it is out of control. It grows really fast. You have to trim it back a couple of times during the summer. It, it grows sure. fast. 
Yeah. Well, look look up uh, Google Cassia, C-A-S-S-I-A, and uh, if that's what you're looking at, then you I would plant it on the south side of the house. I get a little protection from the north wind and figure that it'll freeze down and come back out. Uh, if it turns out to be alamanda, it will freeze and die. But uh, take a look at uh, Cassia and see if that's what you're looking at. If so, and there are lots of different Cassias, but... Um, uh, Corambosa, I believe, is uh, might be. I'd, I'd have to look it up, but uh, that that's a possibility that would freeze down and come back up. And uh, uh, it's a beautiful shrub. It really is a very very vigorous shrub. And uh, again, I wouldn't put it on the north side, but I put it on a sunny area with just a little bit of protection from the north wind. And uh, you you should do pretty well with it, unless we have a freeze like 2020. But uh, all bets are off on just about everything if that should happen again. Hope it won't. Is it? And so, when should I plant it? And is it is it the the beans? Are are they the ones that? Uh, yeah, that's that's where the seed the yeah the seed will be inside of that bean, but you'll also find uh, you can you know you can actually buy plants that are up to flowering size at many nurseries. If you want to plant the seed, uh, you 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 don't want to plant it out until after the danger of freezing weather has passed. But if you have a suitable place, you can start the seed indoors sometime around New Year's and have a nice little you know twelve inch transplant to set out when the weather warms up in the spring. Uh, like all of the legumes, they uh, you know they're fairly fast growing and just any good rich soil they should germinate and do well. I I give them a little soaking garret juice before you plant the seed, but you should get close to a hundred percent germination from them. So just take the bean apart and get some of those seeds out. Let, yeah, out. let the bean dry. Let the bean dry almost to the point of popping open, and then you can you kind of squeeze it, and it should, oh, they call it dehiss. It should open up along one side, and you'll see a, a row of brown seed inside of it, and that's what you can harvest and plant. Yeah, I opened one of them. I got several of them. I opened one up, and I did see what it looked like to be seeds in there so yeah i'll give that a try That'll be but but again if the seed is mature enough to sprout it should be loose in the pod if it's still green or if it's still firmly attached to the inside of the pod that may not be mature enough uh to germinate and grow so hate to tell you you may just have to make another trip back to the coast as difficult as that would be <laughs> and find yeah, some with I, a little bit more mature seed pod on there I'll just have to go fishing again. Ah, it sounds like a an excellent plan to me. I I fished with my grandfather growing up in a bait shop we used to stop at on the way to his little country place. They they had a sign up in there that said, "The gods do not deduct from the allotted span of men's lives those hours spent fishing." So uh, I think I think getting that fishing trip in on a regular basis is a very important thing. I do my best. Yep. All right. Well, thanks thanks for the information. Always a pleasure, Jim. Thank you, sir. Uh, I believe Ethan is up next. Uh, Ethan, good morning. Good morning. Morning, sir. Uh, I, have a, I have a couple of things that I'd like to ask you to have, and um, they have to do with uh, earlier callers' um, uh, questions as well as your answers. So I was kind of taken back by the average mold spore count uh, you mentioned uh, that we breathe in. I didn't know it was uh, that um, that many. However, oh God! You mentioned, yep. you mentioned research grade facilities, and um, 
I, I mean, they're researching, of course. I mean, that's in the name. Uh, now, research grade specific. Um, I believe you mentioned it when uh, when a, a um, I forget her name. She uh, it was a woman. She called in a, and asking about um, her microgreens. I believe uh, in her house. Yeah, yeah. And my idea, my idea was maybe put a tent over or something like that. But even then, the most are going to get in there. For oh sure. yeah, yeah. There. I mean, if you are really serious about this, and I, I'm an old research biologist by training, but by hobby, uh, I, I started growing orchids back when I was in the eighth grade. Believe it or not, and when you're going to grow orchid seed, you have to do it on a nutrient auger solution. And back when when I first started with it, we worked in what was called a glove box. That's basically a you know a box with a glass top on it, with just uh, you you can't get your hands in. You've got gloves, and you can spray down the inside and sterilize it nowadays they have something called the laminar airflow hood that is uh, maintains like a clean workstation just through super filtration of the air and constant movement that uh, people doing uh, micro uh, stem or I'm sorry uh, uh, tissue propagation um, and and there are I mean it's it's not nearly as hard to create a you know a laboratory clean solution, but as far as doing it as a place to grow microgreens, no, it's it's not worth it and it's not necessary. But uh, no, it the the mole spore count, especially at night, is just astronomical with the kind of weather we've been having. Now that uh, that spurred a question in my mind, or a, a little um, a question, I guess we'll just I won't be fancy with it. Um, now, if plants have evolved, for lack of a better term, or, or maybe that's the right one, I'm not sure, depending on depending on the theology, perhaps. Um, if they evolved and they to express these certain compounds, being exposed to mold spores, if you will, and research is done in a mold spore-free environment, uh, what is your take on ha- on the expressions either not being there or being there or perhaps uh, having an elevated or lowered amount of those expressions? Well, it's you. You can. It's not really practical to compare, you know, an outdoor natural growing environment to an artificial thing when you're where you're growing inside. If you're if you're growing uh, bean sprouts, wheatgrass, whatever, uh, you're growing things in a much much more concentrated form than is ever going to happen in nature. And the best control. Uh, and, and we talk about this in greenhouses all the time. The best way to control all of the different fungi, some of which are serious problems, some of which are just, you know, nuisance things, but it's air movement. And like in a greenhouse, we use what's called an HAF fan, a horizontal airflow fan that just keeps uh, a high volume of air moving around, keeps the leaf surfaces dry, and it doesn't really give... Uh, the, the fungal spores tend to germinate when they land in a drop of water on the leaf. On a dry leaf, they're, you're, you're not nearly as likely to see a fungus get started, but um when when you're growing things in a very concentrated form you've greatly reduced the airflow you're creating a much more moist a much wetter situation and um i mean you can when we're talking about the evolution of plants and other creatures uh and i'll define it and I'll define it as just a change in organisms over time, which I don't think anybody would doubt has happened. But um, what happens in nature, and there are times when the weather works against you and, and you get like 100% failure in, in seed growth, but in a more... I have to deal with my next question. <laughs> okay, go ahead. 
well, I guess my, well, that, that question about the research facilities, uh, I guess, uh, pertains to horticultural and, and ag, ag science and, and botany, because if it's done, if it's research, and that's what uh, you know, science is based off of. I mean, of course, uh, but that's not the exact uh, exact um, kind of exposure in nature. That I guess was the real question. But uh, sure. So my my next question would be, uh, what is your thought on perhaps uh, de- depending on what you're planting, a one to three month planting or seeding period? Well, it would just all depend on the crop that you're growing. Um, and and a, yeah, uh, what now? And the weather. Oh, yeah, and the weather and the season and the temperature. So um, if you're growing indoors in a controlled environment, you can grow wheatgrass or, you know, bean sprouts or whatever if you have adequate light on an almost year-round basis. But um, beyond the microbes, I guess, this one pertains to outside. I guess I apologize for it kind of bleeding over there. But say, say the weather is um, uh, unpredictable, as we know it can happen, very much so. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I guess that's where I was going with it. So that way, uh, it would be maybe an extended harvest, if you will. Uh, so that way, um, they wouldn't. Uh, you could eat raw uh, for you know, right, you know, harvest right then and then eat, if you will, or or, or utilize perhaps uh, versus having your harvest of all your, your all all of one particular plant, uh, you know, at one time. Well, and again, I don't really have time to to talk about this on and on, but again, you almost have to look at the crop because when you're growing bean sprouts, so to speak, uh, what they have found that some of the really good quality nutrients that are in bean sprouts, there's just as much exactly the same amount in a bean sprout as there is in a mature bean plant. So you're going to eat the whole thing, and you're going to eat it at a very small size, uh, whereas on something like wheatgrass, you can clip the tops of it and let it grow on and on and on. So in some cases, it's a continuing harvest. In some cases, um, you're going to get the same amount of nutrient if you eat a little bean sprout or if you eat a giant bean plant, which isn't practical. So we'd almost have to talk about individual plants. And Ethan, I'm going to have to let you go because I've got to get a break in here. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. The following program is recorded All here right. on the Back to gardening and uh, straight back to the phone lines. I believe Chicken Joe is up next. Good morning, Joe. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Hey, uh, hey I want to ask my question. Now I want to be quiet and listen because I came into the laundry room so I could talk to you and not wake up my beautiful partner. <laughs> a wise man. Yes, sir. Uh, well, I really timed uh, – well, I've been treating the, the soil up here in, in, the, in our Denver landscape with a soil activator for, you know, two summers. And uh, mm-hmm. really timed it well this week on putting the last application before the ground freezes this year. Uh, uh because we got a really good snow the afternoon after I did it. But to get to the <laughs> point, I'm, I really would like to, I, I've been puzzled as to what activator is, and I'm not talking about I want the exact recipe, but what is it? And I would really don't understand how it works. So that's my question. So let me just shut up and listen for a while. Well, 
the uh, of course i don't know what all goes in there either that was sort of their flagship product when medina started way back when and like most good things the exact nature of it they have to they have to list on the container what goes into it and certainly anything that has any uh potential to cause harm so to speak but beyond that is what we call proprietary but the way that it works you know, the the thing that changes the texture, the tilth, if you would, uh, the composition of the soil is something we can't even see. The what what uh, the way that you build soil structure is through microbial action. Bacteria produce uh, something it has, has a highly technical name of sticky substance, and it is used to, in effect, glue the particles of clay and sand into a more of a crumb-like structure, which improves the amount of air that is between the particles and the amount of moisture that the soil will hold. And so what we're trying to do is really stimulate the growth of something we can't even see without a microscope. And there are many different compounds, many different substances that will increase microbial activity. And that's what Medina Medina Soil Activator is loaded up with. Then somewhere along the way, I mean, Medina Soil Activator was sort of the original Medina product. Then later on, they said, well, you know, we can make this a lot better if we added liquid seaweed to it, because liquid seaweed has so darn many different good things in it. And that's why they call it Medina Plus, because it was a soil activator plus liquid seaweed. So it's sort of a roundabout way of of talking about, you know, the nature of soil activator, but uh, they could just as easily call it uh, microbial stimulant material. But nobody could say that, much less spell it. So soil activator is just a lot easier concept to grasp. But what you're looking at, uh, you're just looking at a, a bunch of different compounds. Some of them are going to be mineral in nature. Some of them are going to be, we used to call them trace elements. Now we're supposed to call them micronutrients. And some of them are actual high energy sources, so to speak, uh, like molasses and then there are things that are just a you know a great great concentration of nutrients in a very small package and that's what liquid seaweed is all about as you well know all the rivers of the world run to the oceans and so they're carrying all the minerals and all the things that come off the land some of them good some of them bad and the many of the plants of the oceans especially your bigger Things like uh, the giant kelps, some of the cold water kelps are extremely effective at taking the good stuff out of the seawater and concentrating it in their leaves. And so uh, when you add liquid seaweed, per se, you're just bringing in a just a soup of a huge number of different beneficial compounds. I think they're close to 100 different beneficial compounds in the liquid seaweed and then you can throw in, uh, you know, hydrolyzed fish, which is a little bit different than the fish emulsions that are produced by heating, which actually kills off a lot of the good so stuff. But um, uh, that, in a nutshell, is what you're trying to do. If you want to improve the quality of your soil, you want to improve the structure of the soil, and you want to increase the amount of organic material in the soil. And that's what your microbes do. They, they change the structure of the soil all the while 
uh, concentrating, you know, the great majority of the energy in the world, probably 99.99% of it, is held in the form of what we call carbon bonds, about the only other energy source out there, some of the nuclear things. But uh, plants are the carbon sink, they're the energy sink, so to speak, you know, of the world, and whether it's, you know, fresh compost, fresh humates in the soil, or whether it's oil and gas and coal, which is what those things turn into, given a few million years and enough pressure and the right things. So that's what you're doing with something when you're building soil. You're trying to improve the soil structure and increase the organic content of the soil. Those are the two things you're looking to do. And in the process of doing that, and, and there are many different microbes that do it. We have microbes that work at very cold temperatures. We have microbes that work, they're called psychrophilic microbes. We have many that work in sort of a room temperature situation, which we call mesophilic. And then we have the uh, ones that live in the 180-degree uh, pools up in Yellowstone in places, and those are called thermophilic microbes. So we have microbes that are active at almost every temperature until the, you know, eventually where you are in Denver, the problem's going to be that when the soil freezes, that doesn't kill the microbes, but it ties up all the moisture in a crystalline form that we call ice or frost or whatever you want to do, where it's really not available to the microbes. So you have a much shorter season for building soil in Denver than we have in South Texas, where... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the soil never freezes. Yeah, I mean, up there, uh, my friends in Denver with a big nursery operation, they have to bury their water pipe six feet underground. And up here, you could bury it, you know, six millimeters underground, and you wouldn't have to yeah. worry about it freezing. But does that does that touch the highlights of what you want to ask about? Yeah, yeah. I, I will brag a little bit. I've been astounded by the success of two, the two-year program. Yeah. Like I, I uh, was playing some alien bulbs this last week, and I was absolutely amazed by the friability of the soil. Yeah. And I have infected three of my gardening friends up here with uh, with enthusiasm for it. And one of them last week called me and said, hey, man, I put my shovel in the dirt out in the garden this, this morning, and it sunk right down into it. So <laughs> it really works. It really well, works. Joe, be, be sure you're telling them the other half of the equation. Um, and that is what kind of fertilizers they stay with, because organic fertilizers bring enough energy with them to digest the nutrients, so to speak. And when you go to those synthetic fertilizers, and we won't mention Scott's and some of the others by name, but they don't bring any energy to the table. So where the microbes that break those fertilizers down get their energy is decomposing the organic material that you've worked so hard to build up in the soil So you can totally ruin your soil structure by using synthetic nitrogen products. So just be sure that now that your friends have figured out how to build a better soil with a better tilth, be sure they don't undo their good work by using the wrong source of uh, fertilizer material, so to speak. That's a nice way to put it. I'm a a broken record on that. In fact, (laughs) we treated treated our friend's front landscape uh, just just, uh, Wednesday. And, uh, and he was asking, well, what should I do now? I said, compost, 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 mulch, mulch, mulch. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, you you ought to, I guess you have your own consulting service, so to speak, up there. So you keep up the good work, and we'll look forward to seeing you when you come, when you, when you run from the cold and come back to see us in San Antonio. You bet. Okay, thanks, Bob. Okay, You're welcome, bye-bye. Joe. Thank you.
Joe was a good friend and customer here in San Antonio for many years, and now he divides his time between San Antonio and the Denver area. So always fun to talk to somebody that uh, that's doing it right. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Back to gardening, and uh, let's get uh, started with George. Good morning, George. Hi. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Um, My question is a citrus question. Um, I've had my citrus in pots for the last few years, and I'm noticing the water's kind of running down, running through pretty quickly, so I'm thinking maybe their their roots are getting really dense in there. Uh Uh-huh. I'm wondering, is this winter a good time or can I take the plants out and cut out the roots? And if I can, how much should I take out? Well, you're setting the plant back, you know, anytime you're trimming on the roots. Plants like to be hel- uh, root-bound. Uh, citrus is are no different than many house plants. And so uh, the fact that the water is running through isn't necessarily doesn't have a lot to do with the roots if the plants are drying out more quickly then that's because the plants are simply transpiring more moisture which would indicate that it was getting root bound but i would emphasize that it does not harm a plant to be root bound and unless you're trying to bonsai them there's really no reason to go in and be cutting the root system out Uh, the more roots you have the stronger and healthier the plant is likely to be so I don't think I'd really be, like I say, the bonsai, you know, is uh, they do by root pruning to limit the size of the plants. And if that's your intention, yes, the winter months are certainly the best time to do it. But it's not really going to improve the overall health of the plant. It's just going to, you know, keep them to be a little bit shorter statured. I, if I were looking for trying to have smaller trees i would be looking at trying to find some citrus that was simply grafted onto a rootstock like flying dragon which uh is a uh, uh is a naturally dwarfing rootstock let me do this uh, let me get don to put you back on hold because i'm right up against the news time i want to continue this conversation on ktsa radio san antonio south texas gardening with bob webster is on the air talk to bob now 210-599-5555. The following program is recorded and aired on previous days. All right. Back to gardening. We'll get back to the phone calls just as soon as I tell you that this portion of the Garden Show is brought to you in part by our good friends at Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. Had a real nice visit with Danny Bose yesterday. I was helping him shoot a little bit of video. Uh, and Southwest Metal Roofing Systems is just an amazing company. And I love, I love Danny's line. He says, do it once, do it for life. And that sort of describes the Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof because it is truly a lifetime quality roof. And uh, I was looking at some of their look-alike roofs. I mean, I have a standing seam metal roof on my home. We have one of the roofs on our Shades of Green Nursery here. But thinking about replacing the roof on my barn and wanted something that looks a little bit more natural, they actually have what looks like a hybrid between a corrugated metal roof and a standing seam roof, but with that same lifetime quality metal. And, of course, the workmanship that Southwest Metal Roofing Systems provides is simply unsurpassed. They're truly the best roofing company in the industry, in my opinion. 
And I've had one of the roofs in my home for, gosh, what, 20 years now without one single call back to them for any kind of problems. They simply do the job right the first time. Do it right. Do it for life. It's a great slogan. And uh, uh, you're going to get a roof that's energy efficient, going to save you money on your utility bills. Many, many insurance companies give a discount when you have a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof on your home because they know they're not going to have to replace that roof. It's just it's just a great, great thing. And Southwest Metal Roofing Systems does new construction, so you'll never have to worry about your roof. Or if you're looking at a roof replacement, why not put on the last roof you'll ever put on your home? A roof from Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. Learn more. Give them a call, 210-822-6868. That's 210-822-6868. By the way, if you want to see what one of the roofs looks like, just look up when you come to Shades of Green. That's the roof they put on uh, on our business oh, 12, 15 years ago, something like that. Best in the business, Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. All right, let's uh, get back to the phone lines. I think George uh, went on, but uh, Brandon is next. Good morning, Brandon. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Oh, doing well. It's going to be another beautiful weekend out there and a little dry, but ah, what can I say? It's, uh, it's, It's good weather to get out and enjoy your gardening, that's for sure. Yes, sir, it is. Hey, I am going to move my garden, I think, this year. Okay. Normally I keep it on the back of the house where there's some clay soil. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to move it up front where there's some sandy soil. Um, the problem is there happens to be some coastal Bermuda because it's it's part of a coastal field. Right. Um, well, my thought, and you can tell me you know, how off I am and if you have any better ideas, but my thought was to go through with a moldboard plow and plow that area under and then uh, disc the top of it, and then put some compost and some mulch on top, and let it sit till spring. Um, but my father-in-law told me if I do that, I'm going to make the coastal come back stronger than it ever was before. I was just going to say that's the recipe for growing the best coastal you have ever found. So, um, getting rid of Bermuda grass, whether it's coastal or common, uh, is a challenge this time of year. The only thing that I can tell you is effective almost 100% of the time is solarization. And that means putting the plastic over the ground and letting it heat up to, you know, 180 degrees underneath that plastic, which literally steam sterilizes the soil. Problem is, it's not going to happen in November or December. It's what we have to do in July and August when we're in really, really hot weather. Um, the best thing I can tell you is just uh, simply, and, and again, Coastal has underground runners, just like all Bermuda does. So it, it's difficult to eliminate it. I mean, uh, I've gone through where I just had to get rid of it and literally gone through and dug it out and screened the soil and tried to get all the runners out and probably got 98% of them and then just dealt with it as it came up. Now, if you had a little bit more time, um, you could do what, what I do. I, my garden is, uh, at, at, in the past when I've had a little bit more time, when I've wanted to expand the area where I garden, I would actually take the weed block fabric and put down on top of the coastal and Bermuda and everything else. And it turns the soil to just, you know, crappy soil underneath it, but it kills out the the weeds and the coastal and everything else effectively. And then you can restore the soil with compost and, you know, compost tea and things like that. But there is no easy solution to uh, 
to getting rid of the coastal. And I'm going to tell you that regardless of what you do for the first year, you're going to be you're going to be fighting some of the, having some of the coastal come back out. But having said that, if you stay diligent, if you stay on top of it, you can certainly keep it under control. And I guess I would plan on creating a big enough garden that when July or August comes along, that you can solarize half of it and still continue to grow your beans and tomatoes and eggplant and all the things we love to grow in the summer months. Uh, keep half of it where you can still grow it while you solarize the other half. And then once you've got the coastal and everything else eliminated from that half, you can go back and, you know, solarize the remaining portion of it. And uh, uh, if you did this, say, starting in June, assuming that we get hot in June next year like we did this year, you could actually solarize half of it, say, from June 1st to July 15th and solarize the second half of it from uh, July 15th until about September 1st. But that's that's just the only thing. Anything that you put down to kill the coastal is going to leave a residue in the soil that's going to kill everything else that you're trying to plant later on. So it, it's just, it's a, it certainly is possible to reclaim that area, but to do it on a real short time frame is, uh, uh, is, it would be a real challenge. I'll put it that way. I mean, long term, you really need to do this. The other way, if you wanted to do it, and I'm not necessarily recommending this, would be to create a high walled raised bed garden. I mean, you could actually put down, I hate weed block fabric, but it has occasional uses. But you can put a a thick, durable, and not all weed block is that durable. Some of it's just poor quality all the way around. But you could put that down, and then you could build up a garden that was 24 inches deep. That would be sort of the minimum depth that I would say you're really going to garden well. And that would suppress it. But you're talking about a lot of work. You'd end up using cinder blocks or treks or something mm-hmm. like that uh, to create your raised garden. And... Uh, I just don't know what your priorities are, how big a garden you want, how fast you want it, and how much energy and money you're willing to expend to get from point A to point B. But so I'm giving you a lot of random thoughts, but I'm I'm just trying to give you a little bit of a realistic picture of uh, how tough yeah, uh, I, I think is. you've uh, convinced me to to wait until next year. I, I think I'll <laughs> I'll leave the garden where it is for this spring, and then I'll solarize during the summer, and then I can move it move it next year that so, sounds that like sounds a plan like probably the way to go but you know if you wanted to go ahead and cover it uh and i don't know whether that's practical or not it's uh it's not going to do the thorough job that solarization does but you could you could get half of it killed out just by covering it with black plastic or something like that through the winter months and if you're dealing with 50 percent less coastal when you go to solarize it next fall or next summer all the better so um it's it's up to you it's not going to look beautiful while you're in process but sometimes uh (laughs) the taste of tomatoes overrides the desire to have something that looks absolutely beautiful all the time (laughs) sure well hey i have another question for you bob Yes, sir. I've come across a place in Gonzales that sells um, spent mushroom compost. Right. What? Uh, how? How good is that compared to normal compost? Is it something I should use or something I should avoid? Mushroom compost, in general, is an excellent material. Uh, it. I. I prefer blended compost because uh, when you're using 
a single source compost, whether it's cotton burrs, whether it's mushroom, whether it's uh, manure, whatever else, you're getting a you're getting only the microbes that break down that particular material. And so when you when you're using a compost that's derived from twenty different things, you're gonna get a lot wider range of microbial life. But having said that, mushroom compost uh is some of the cleanest, best compost you're going to find. Now the only negative is that uh the people that grow the mushrooms over there in order to sterilize, they have to sterilize these bins that they grow the mushrooms in periodically, and they tend to use salt water to do that. And every now and then you get a batch of mushroom compost that's high in sodium, which is not really a good thing for the plants you want to grow. But having said that, I would take salt over herbicide contamination. So mushroom compost, 95% of the time, is great as is. 5% of the time, if you got some of it that's a little too salty uh, until that, and then, you know, sodium chloride is pretty water-soluble, so it's going to go away and improve over time, but uh, I'm certainly not going to discourage you from it. It is good quality compost, just if you if you were to get it and you saw like a white, crusty material, you're looking at some stuff that's got a little bit too much sodium in it. Okay. Yeah, so worst-case scenario, let it set to the side for a couple months and then set it on so yeah. some of that yeah. salt has a chance to leach out. Right. A couple okay. of months of rain. Now, if you can arrange the rain, yeah. I have a big oh, yeah. job for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we're praying over here, but we haven't had much yet. So one last question for you. What's the When's the best time to prune red oak trees and citrus trees? Citrus trees, I like to prune while they are in bloom in the spring. And the reason for that is that uh, you can see where the fruit's going to be. You can see, you know, where where you have the potential, and you can prune out limbs that have the fewest flowers and therefore are going to make the least amount of fruit. You can leave the limbs that are a little bit more heavily flowered, and uh, so you can do your pruning but minimally impact uh, the you know, the the effect on the amount of fruits you're going to get. So that's when I, I like to do it. Once the buds have formed where you can see which branches are going to be the heaviest producers, then you can go through and trim as you need to. Uh, red oaks, there's not a safe time to prune without painting the wounds, if that's what you're trying to avoid. Uh, uh, red oaks are very susceptible to oak wilt, and if they get oak wilt, there's no cure. The tree's going to be dead in about two weeks. So I feel on red oaks that it is especially important that all wounds, you know, be. you don't have to use pruning paint, but you have to use something to seal that wound. It remains infectable for about 10 days. So uh, you can prune any time you like, so long as you paint the wounds. But having said that, my favorite time to do the pruning is in the winter months when the leaves are off the tree, because then you can, that's the time you can see the limb structure and make your best decisions on which limbs can stay, which limbs need to come out, and uh, uh, how much you actually want to change the shape of the tree. The other thing that you can tell in the winter months is, looking at this limb structure, anywhere you have a very narrow angle crotch, whether it's a limb where it joins the trunk or whether it's, where it's the trunk that's decided it wants to be a double trunk tree, the more narrow the angle is, the more prone it is to storm damage. And I spent... I spent part of my days off this week 
<laughs> making making firewood out of two very large red oaks that came down on my ranch uh, sometime this past summer. So um, part of your pruning should be to take out the weak limbs. The wider the angle a limb makes with the trunk or another branch, the stronger that limb is. And once again, when the leaves are off the tree, that's the easiest time to see what you're doing. So you can prune them 365 days a year, and there's not a safe time unless you are well assured that we're going to have 10 days of weather constantly below freezing to cut down on the beetle activity that could potentially spread the oak wilt. So um, as long as you're going to paint the wounds, do it any time. The time I choose is in the winter months when the leaves are off because then I can see what I'm doing a little bit better, so to speak. Okay. And is it better to leave a little bit of the branch sticking out on the, the trunk when the trees are young? I thought I've heard you say that before. Don't okay, turn when, them all the way back to the trunk. Yeah, when, when, the trees, when the trees are young... Uh, remember that those limbs, wherever they come out from the trunk, they're always going to be at that point. There are people out there who still think that the limbs rise up as the trunk grows, and that's not the case. If it's two feet off the ground now, it's going to be in the way if you let it make a big limb. But um, you're exactly right. If you have foliage up and down the trunk, the trunk's going to grow stronger, thicker, more quickly. So I like, until that trunk is about five or six inches in diameter, I will go through every winter and cut those little limbs back to where they're only about six inches long so they're not making major scaffold limbs. But having those leaves up and down the trunk is going to give you a stronger, better trunk much more quickly. All right. I appreciate it, Bob. Have a good morning. You do the same. And let me tell you one thing, too. I don't know what kind of a saw. I just I was having uh, this discussion with a couple of our employees who did not. We were actually doing some uh, carpentry yesterday, and I was asking them if they knew the difference in a pruning saw and a carpenter saw. And the answer is it's the set of the teeth. On a carpenter saw, the teeth are, are, are cut, so to speak, so that your power stroke is when you push that saw down. A pruning saw, the set of the teeth is the reverse, and your powerful cutting stroke is when you pull back. So if you're, if you're using a, a, a hand saw of any sort or a pole saw uh, to do your pruning, do invest in a good pruning saw. Don't try to use the same thing you're out there sawing two-by-fours with. Uh, if you're using a chainsaw, you know, obviously <laughs> those those do a good job. But um, <laughs> to the amount you leave sticking out, I when, when I'm doing it on young trees, I'm going to leave those little branches five, six inches long. But when you're actually wanting to take a branch all the way off, you don't cut it flush with the trunk. When you look at it very carefully, you'll see that there's a little ring of cells that look different right where the limb comes out. That's referred to as a branch collar, and you want to cut just beyond that point. You don't want to leave any two or three inches stubs sticking out, but neither do you want to cut it back all the way flush with the trunk. When you leave that branch collar, you've got this tissue there that will form a callus that grows over the wound uh, fairly quickly. All right. Thanks, Bob. Pruning, pruning 101. Thank you for the call this morning. I really appreciate it. All right, let's get a break in here, and uh, then we'll get back to more phone calls. I do have some open lines, by the way. Uh, you know how busy it gets later in the show, so good time to dial 210-599-5555. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It's going to be Mike and then Tom. Mike is up first. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. 
How are you this beautiful morning? <laughs> it is a beautiful morning, and other than being disappointed about lack of rain once again, you know, we just look forward to the next time. But it's uh, it's a great weekend. It's just a wonderful time of year, and uh, I can't believe people sit inside and watch sports on TV when they could be outside <laughs> enjoying. But uh, that's just me. Yeah, I hear you. If I'm not um, if I'm not playing, I'm not watching. <laughs> and it's been a long time since I did that with any with any great deal of enthusiasm. My gardening is my exercise these days. Oh yes, um, my crepe myrtles. I got three small ones. Uh huh. Like maybe uh, stem a little bit bigger than uh, oh uh, inch and a half. Okay, that's not a that's not a small plant at all. That's a good sized scrape myrtle. Oh, uh, to me, it's small compared to that big <laughs> one. That I have. Oh, it is. It will be compared to what it's going to be in twenty years, but uh, uh, it's not like a little thing like a pencil. It's probably like a lot of bar when you buy them, but uh, yeah. it's it's a it's still a young plant. It still has a ways to grow. And um, the leaves. Uh, have turned black on me, and I was told mm-hmm. it was some kind of bug or something. Or and, and I'm, but is that true? Uh, or what's well, causing these things to turn uh, black? Truly, truly, every crepe myrtle in Texas probably this year has been stressed by the weather. When it gets stressed by the weather, the aphids show up, uh, and aphids leave a sugary poop, a sugary excrement behind. And then uh-huh. black mold grows on the aphid poop. Uh, it doesn't sound very uh-huh. appetizing, but the black is not the leaves. The black is what is growing on the residue that the aphids left behind. My okay. advice to you is ignore it. Those crepe myrtles are going to drop every leaf on the plant sometime in the next two to four weeks. And if you want to get out there with your hose and, in effect, just wash it off to a certain degree, you can do uh-huh. that. But no spraying necessary. And... Uh, uh, when you start okay. spraying, you, you're, you're damaging the beneficials that are trying to keep the aphids under control. But uh, the black's not your leaves. The black is just the residue, the sticky stuff that the aphids left behind that the black mold has decided to grow on. And it's uh-huh. nothing to lose any sleep over. Focus on oh. keeping the root flare exposed, keeping the plants properly watered, putting a little fall fertilizer on them. And just uh, look the other way if anybody points out the leaves are ugly. Okie dokie. Um, is there a particular reason why I'm only on these three small ones and not the you know ten footer that I have? The the smaller trees probably uh, it could be varietal. It could be that for whatever reason the smaller ones were more stressed. The more stressed the tree becomes, the more aphids you're going to have. Could also be that you've got a a larger number of predatory insects, be they lacewings, ladybugs, praying mantis, uh, giant wheel bugs, assassin bugs. There are a lot of different bugs that go after and eat the aphids. So it may just be that your bigger one uh, was blessed with more uh, predatory insects on it that keep the aphids under control better. Or it may simply be that your bigger one is better established, so it was less stressed and didn't didn't get as many aphids. Ah, okay. Well, thank you very much, Bob. I appreciate it. I wish all the problems had such an easy answer to them. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, I appreciate your call. You get out and have a great yeah. weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, Tom, hang on just a second. We're past 830, so I better sneak another break in here and... 
South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. The following program is recorded and aired on previous dates. All right, back to gardening. We're going to start with Tom. And uh, once again, I guess everybody's a little, stayed up a little late last night. Don't have quite as many phone calls as usual. Got some open lines. If you want to grab one, do it now because it's almost time for Howard Garrett, who will be coming up at the top of the hour. You know the number, 210-599-5555. Right now we say good morning, Tom. Good morning, Bob. I uh Another day uh, listening to the expert. I appreciate you. <laughs> what 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 station is that you're listening to? <laughs> I'm teasing. It's my pleasure to be here, and uh, I don't know about expert. I'm just a guy that's made every mistake you can make in gardening, so I'll try to keep you from making the same ones. We've all had brown plants. Uh, mm-hmm. The question, two questions. One is, I've never mentioned you in your fall garden of planting snow peas or other fall peas is that a mistake is putting snow peas in the ground Uh, yeah it's an excellent excellent question tom but uh you need to understand the way that snow peas grow and in a typical winter they're not going to be the plants are not going to be bothered but freezing weather uh, tends to freeze the flowers, and uh, it keeps you from getting any pea production. So if you want to grow a fall crop of snow peas, you need to get them in the ground early. You need to get them in the ground oh, sometime around the 1st of September uh, so they'll have time to grow and produce before we get into when we typically have freezing weather. So I would not be planting snow peas right now. But the second crop of snow peas comes that uh, we usually plant sometime around Christmas to New Year's because this way the plants can grow during that period of pretty cold weather. And then about the time we get past the freezing uh, days, that's when your snow peas can bloom and start making peas. So I used to only grow that early spring crop and I had a friend that kept telling me, oh, no, you can do so well with them in the fall. And then she brought me a giant package of snow peas just to prove her point, <laughs> which, which I think we have for Thanksgiving dinner or something like that. So, no, snow peas are a great fall crop, but I would not plant them right now when we're going to be heading into a season when they're not going to be able to make much produce. But put on your calendar for, you know, first round Labor Day next year, Go ahead and get some planted. Some years, you know, we get early cold and uh, you don't get any fall production. But many years, uh, you're going to get a good crop in the fall. And there are very few things that are tastier or healthier for you than edible pod peas. So, uh, yeah, that's one of the things that I love. And I do not like paying $6 a pound for us in the grocery stores. And I'll be honest with you, in my own garden, a uh, small percentage of the peas actually go into the bucket. I can sit there and eat about 30 or 40 of those things, just snap them off the vine. And uh, since my garden's organic, uh, I don't even usually bother to wash. It's just snap them and munch on them and uh, tell tell your friends, gee, I just didn't pick very many of them. <laughs> but, uh, no, as, you know, long answer to short question, uh, grow your snow peas, but don't be planting them this time of year. Plant them in late December, early January for your spring crop. Next year, planting them on plan on planting them around Labor Day for your fall crop. So, New Year's is the day. 
we have to watch the weather, and I, I, I just don't trust anybody when it comes to giving an accurate weather forecast because there is right. none such animal out there. A lot of people like watching the Farmer's Almanac, and they have a reasonably high level of success, 70% or something like that. And they're saying we're going to have a warm December and a bitterly cold January. So it can get cold enough to freeze them, but uh, package of seed doesn't cost very much. And if they freeze, then, you know, we plant some more. But um, that that is the time that I'm usually going to be planting my spring snow peas. I uh, planted some uh, weeks ago, but mm-hmm. there was no inoculant available. Can right. inoculant, since mm-hmm. it's just an additional bacteria, be administered to the plant now? If I well, find somebody that has it, it's the there are of course many many different bacteria. The one that is that we use as inoculant on beans and peas uh, is what allows the plant to form these little nodules on the roots, which are filled with the bacteria that is able to take atmospheric nitrogen and convert it into fertilizer, so to speak. Um, It is a good idea if you can find the inoculant, and I'm told there's going to be more of it out there available around the first of the year. It just wasn't available the past year. But if you inoculate your seed the first year, and if you continue to replant in the same area, it stays in the soil. Um, the, the, the little nodules look kind of like little BBs, tiny little BBs on the roots, uh, when they get pulled up or whatever at the end of the season, a lot of those things remain in the soil. So you usually only have to plant inoculated seed in a given spot one time. And the, uh, the bacteria is there for years to come. But if you move to a different place or if you start a new garden, it's nice to be able to inoculate the seed. Now, uh, it's not absolutely necessary. The peas are going to grow and produce regardless of whether the seed's inoculated or not. They're just going to grow better if they have been inoculated because they're, in that case, they're getting a natural fertilizer that they're producing themselves plus the fertilizer that you put into the soil when you plant. So uh, uh, it's a very good question, and I don't know why the inoculant was just basically not out there this past year. I guess I ought to call my friend Dean Williams over at Douglas King Seed because uh, they sell lots of inoculant because people put it on vetch. They put it on even blue bonnets and clover and things like that. And so I need to ask Dean if uh, if there's going to be plenty of inoculant out there this year. I'll try to do that before next weekend if I get a chance. And then the second question and the last, uh, the spider mites are... Uh, vicious in the hot as you well know mm-hmm. and is using the has to grow uh, plant liquid plant and uh, some seaweed do i have to add the spinicide to that no no it, it just understand that the way that liquid seaweed works with the spider mites it doesn't hurt the spider mites in any way form or fashion but the liquid seaweed tends to toughen the leaves of the plants to where the spider mites have difficulty feeding on them. So what you're doing is just uh, is just creating a plant that the spider mites can't really live on. 
and that means you have to get started a little earlier in the season. You have to give the plants time to grow some of those tougher leaves, so to speak, because the seaweed does nothing to kill the mites. If you've got a bad spider mite infestation going, you probably want to spray with uh, spinosad soap or something like that because spinosad is a good spider mite killer, whereas liquid seaweed is a good spider mite preventer. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. So now, what, one other thing about liquid seaweed. The way you do it is you continually apply the seaweed in the yeah. in dilution over the whole period of the planting. I, yeah, I would do that, and i do it about every two weeks. I like mis- mixing a little molasses with the seaweed. I think that makes it even more effective. Now, a double benefit that you get out of this, uh, because the seaweed is not only toughening the leaves of the plant, it's raising what we call the bricks, B-R-I-X. If you look that up, you'll find that it's a measure of the level of sugar in the sap of the plant. And the higher the bricks, the more freeze-resistant the plants are. So keeping up your spraying with your liquid seaweed, especially with a little bit of molasses in it, is also going to give your plants an additional 5 to 10 degrees protection from cold weather damage. So there are multiple benefits from doing it, not just in spider mite prevention. You're applying seaweed right now. Absolutely. It's a great thing to do. It's uh, um, And, again, I'm not about to try to predict what, the weather's going to be this winter, but I know your plants will be more cold-hardy. But you can't wait and do it the night before the first freeze. It's uh, uh, You need to be doing it right now and be doing it every 10 days to two weeks. About two is tablespoons. Is it better to play it as, as a foliar spray? Or is it Absolutely. No, much effective in mixing it with the watering? Uh, much more effective as a foliar spray. And the rate... Yeah, the rate that I use it is two tablespoons liquid seaweed and one tablespoon of molasses to a gallon of water. But uh, it is much, much more effective as a foliar spray than as a drench. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the knowledge. Well, thank you for a great question and the chance to talk about something that I feel is pretty darn important. So, Tom, you get out and have a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk again. Yeah, you don't have the inoculate, I gather. We don't have it yet. Um, I'll be talking with one of our suppliers probably on Monday, and I'll see if I can get an answer when it's going to be in. They're telling us we will be able to get it. They're not just not telling us what size the packages are going to be or when it's going to be in the shelf, but they're telling us uh, we will have it for the spring planting season. So I won't promise it till it's sitting out there ready to go. But so you don't you don't apply it uh, uh, after the. You, you apply it at the time of the seed. Of planting, of planting, yeah. What you do, it's it's really fine. It's almost as fine as graphite. It's just, uh, you know, finer than dust particles. And the way that I've always done it, uh, beans or peas, either one, I will soak my seeds, not for a long time, but maybe five minutes or so. I'll give them a garret juice soak. And uh, just imagine I've got my little cup of water here. I've got my seeds. I've got the water in there. After about five minutes, I put my fingers on the top, tilt it up, and decant the liquid off. And then I sprinkle a little bit of the inoculant down into the cup, shake it up, and the peas go from being tan in color to just totally black as they get coated with the inoculant. And then I go out and plant. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. And uh, I know there will be other questions, and I'll call you later. You know where to find me. I appreciate it. Thank Thank you, Bob. 
You're welcome. Thank you. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Hey, I told you about the two things going on tonight that I'm aware of. The big hangar dance up in San Marcos and the Cadet Volunteer Fire Department Enchilada Supper. I'm going to take just a second and look out another week next Saturday. A week from today, the uh, Green Spaces Alliance folks are having their Nature Fest down at Mission County Park. And it's going to be a tremendous event. Starts out with a run along the river in the morning, which you need to sign up. And there is a, there is a, a charge to uh, participate in that. But then they're going to have what they call the Nature Challenge Walk. And then they have a conservation fair. You just won't believe all the people, all the organizations that are there. They kind of, and I was talking to uh, Doug Dillo, the head of uh, Green Spaces Alliance, uh, yesterday here in the nursery and he said they're trying to take earth day and you know turn this event into what earth day really was intended to be and all the people participating there from the edwards aquifer authority to the folks from uh, williamson and eco centro and uh different agri life extension is going to be there the witty museum is going to be there pheasants and quail forever not heard of that organization san antonio river authority climate enthusiast of san antonio uh, the Great Springs Project. Anyway, this is just a tremendous event that's going to be take place, taking place from 9 to 1, and there is no charge for uh, going to the big conservation fair that's there. So if you're looking for something really fun to do, uh, this is coming up next Saturday morning down at uh, uh, Mission County Park, and uh, they're even going to do a river cleanup. Go to their website, the Green Spaces Alliance website, if you want to get all the details. But if you're looking for something fun to do next Saturday morning, uh, this should be pretty high on the list. Let's get back to a couple more phone calls before our visit with Howard Garrett. James is first, and it'll be Debbie. Good morning, James. Yes, sir. How you doing, Bob? Uh, it's going to be a beautiful day, and I'm enjoying it already. Okay. I need your opinion. Uh, I've cleaned up about 15 acres and i want to make a hay, uh, grass field in there and put some of my calves in there okay and uh i cleaned up i pulled out the wee satch maybe a couple of hundred small plants and a few big tall ones and uh and i can't i can't I don't, you know we don't have the weather to burn them right so my i was asking you you know they've been out i pulled them out late in august and they're dried up pretty well and i was mm-hmm. thinking of getting my tractor shredder and just we're going over them and chopping them up you wouldn't think those things would start sprouting again after that oh no no that's not going to be an issue and if you've got a powerful enough shredder you know you can do that it would have been better to rent a chipper for a day and just run it all through there but if your shredder and your tractor are powerful enough by all means shred them up there's going to be no danger of having any sprouts come up from that yeah, that would be better than handling that we set. I don't want to get all punctured. <laughs> and you don't want to puncture all your tires, but you know, don't don't worry about it resprouting, James. That's not going to be an issue. Let me get Debbie in here before the Howard Garrett uh, right. interview. Thanks, thanks, James. So, uh, good morning, Debbie. Good morning. About a minute and a half till news. How can I help you? Okay, I need to find out how what I need to make my greenhouse the optimum use like do i need intake shutters i need exhaust fans i need a water wall how big is your greenhouse how big is your greenhouse okay and you're planning to use it year round or is this basically just a place to put things to protect them in the winter months well yes i've been using them in the winter months but i want to be able to use it all around 
Okay, if you're using it year-round, you will have to have some additional cooling. A greenhouse that big, uh, yes, the most efficient way, rather than putting a swamp cooler, uh, most efficient way would be to put exhaust fans on one wall and then on the opposite side, keep the air moving around as well. We can talk more after a Harriet interview, Harriet interview, if you want to call back. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. The following program is recorded and aired on previous dates. All right, back to gardening. But as you know, this is not the 30-minute or so segment when you're going to call. We'll, we'll have time for a few more calls in a little while. And, of course, we do this again tomorrow from 8 till 11. But this is the time that we have the pleasure of visiting with the Dirt Doctor. Good morning, Howard Garrett. Good morning. Y'all got missed by the rain, huh? Oh, one more time. Uh, it's uh, it, it was a beautiful, beautiful lightning show last night. Uh, one of those ones where you look off and you're too far away to hear the thunder, but the clouds just sit there and pulse with light and energy. And uh, uh, But, you know, when you can look up and see stars overhead, <laughs> you know you're not going to get much benefit from it. But it was... Uh, it, it was a beautiful storm to look at. Now, I understand that some areas, you know, got pretty rough weather out of it. Uh, how'd y'all do with the Metroplex? We got a lot of rain, real nice, uh, kind of long-lasting rain, and there was some rough stuff. We uh, had some tornadoes. and I was driving home right in the middle of it, and the trees oh, wow. were whipping around pretty bad. It was one of those situations where it gets your attention that something could get <laughs> really bad here in a minute. So I was... I was glad to get home and it calmed down a little bit, but it was really whipping the uh, trees around. You know, and uh, it's been my opinion, and that's all it is, is opinion. I have no factual knowledge to back it up, but we've talked about this summer limb drop syndrome, and it seems to me that when we have been in a really dry period, when there's obviously... The sap is a little less concentrated and all that the trees are even more susceptible to storm damage. I was thinking about this because I was uh, making a very large red oak that came down back in the summer, turning it into firewood yesterday. But uh, it seems to me like, you know, having that kind of a fairly violent thunderstorm following such a drought really increases the chance of some significant damage from it. I guess you haven't been out uh, this morning to see if you if there was much damage around your area or not no i haven't seen that yet but i'm not going to be surprised to to find that i think you're exactly right when the plants i had a great big limb come down from the big american elm back by my greenhouse this summer yeah. same same kind of thing i think when the sap uh it gets to be a at a problem level just the weight of a big mm-hmm. limb yeah. It just takes it off. The tree just says, I'm not going to use any more energy holding this limb up. I'm going to let it go. And it's it's been well discussed, but and it's, uh, it's a very dangerous thing because so far as I know, there's no way of really predicting. Now, we know that elms, of course, make narrow-angled crotches, which are more susceptible to damage, but the cedar elms and pecans and these things, limbs that structurally appear to be relatively sound sometimes like you say just come just come crashing down unexpectedly and uh it's 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 a dangerous situation i i'm sure that 
the additional stress of being buried and all the other things we talk about makes them even more susceptible to it. And, you know, good old sick treat treatment program is probably the best thing you can do to reduce your chances of that happening. But uh, it's a scary event when it happens. Yeah, it can be dangerous, too. It's why I've been uh, talking uh, to people pretty seriously about getting an arborist in to take some weight out of the top of the tree in the form of dead uh, wood. A lot of people think, well, it's no big deal, it's dead to leave it in there. And I'm kind of cavalier about it sometimes, but you'd be surprised at how much energy the tree has to use holding up a whole lot of dead branches, even though it's small stuff. If there's a lot of it in the tree, there's a lot of weight involved in that. I'm about to have an arborist come over and take some out of mine that uh, goes back, you know, the last two winters in the uh, creating dead wood in the live oaks. Well, and I'm glad you used the term arborist, which is the best thing, and not tree trimmer, because, golly, we have, we sure have a lot of people that butcher their trees up, and uh, people that call themselves professional, and basically all they've got is a plastic sign and a pickup truck, but I, I just hate to see the way the trees are brutalized and that's why it's so important that we uh, not only get a good arborist but an arborist with some experience because uh, trees are just you know they're the they're the primary focus of every landscape and uh, it's a chainsaw can do a lot of damage or it can do some good things so getting that good arborist is certainly an, an important thing well without doubt and one of the most common mistakes to people that don't know what they're doing uh, inflict on trees is, is pruning too much out of the tree, you know, lifting yeah. and gutting too much out of the canopy. They think that they, if they make it look like they've done a lot, that uh, they're more apt to get more work. It really puts a lot of stress on the tree. And then the last thing that may be as important or more important is the flush cutting. Yeah. Somebody was asking yeah. me last week about about cavities and whether to put concrete or foam or whatever in the cavities, and I said, no, don't put anything. Leave it. No. The tree has the ability to put barriers up, and even though it might hold water, the best thing to do on a cavity is to leave it open and remember yep. that in the future, the cause of the cavities is somebody <laughs> putting that saw too close and cutting a flush cut. It's the worst thing you can do. And I think we I think we mentioned it last week, but the worst thing you can do there is to try to drill a hole to drain it out because that just opens up more tissue. And uh, I will tell you right now, and then you have to throw a little BT in there because I've seen a healthy mosquito colony or two inside of a hollow tree with some standing water. But, uh, um, I, it, you know, it, it's just it's not that serious a problem to have a hollow in a tree and i i think the uh um arborist uh i think the what i've heard quoted is that a hollow tree with a good couple of inches left uh is 80 percent as strong as a tree that it has a solid trunk so it's not and and the one thing that i tell people and i kind of get on my soapboxes i'm sure you do is if anybody comes in and tells you they're going to do an artistic job of pruning your trees they're going to make your trees more artistic show them the door <laughs> because they're going to mess it up <laughs> you want to keep the character that's there because that's what the tree prefers mm-hmm. say i heard uh, you uh, one of your callers talking about getting rid of uh, coastal bermuda and planting a garden i've got a little tip and it, and it 
goes with some experience there that I wanted to pass on. I'm one all ears. About, one of the things about <laughs> Bermuda grass, whether it's coastal or common or tiff or whatever it is, the um, the rhizomes are shallow. There, a lot of people think that uh, Bermuda grass will come back from the roots, and that's a fallacy. That that's right. not the case. The only thing that's reproductive are the uh, are the rhizomes, and they tend to be in the top two inches of soil. In fact, 95 percent of them are going to be an inch and a half deep to two inches in the soil. Oh. And we we looked at uh, different techniques. Back when I was in the landscape business, and when I was with Lambert, we had some big areas there at the place out there on on uh, LBJ where we experimented with these techniques, and we planted a lot of different crops as experimental crops. Uh -huh. It was kind of fun. What we what we learned from all the things we planted grasses and clovers and cover crops and all kinds of stuff. But when I told the people. What I wanted to do, the the head guy, the guy that was in charge of all the landscape installation, really bucked me. He didn't he didn't believe that I uh, was right on this. I said, well, let's try it and see what happens. So what I told him was to do two different things. One, and I'm I'm recommending this on the ranches where I'm consulting, where people are transitioning over to vegetable gardens and things, uh -huh. orchards and different things. But you can do one of two things. One, get a sod cutter, bring a sod cutter out, at, mow the area down nice and low so you don't have a bunch of uh, uh, top growth in the way. And right. then set the sod cutter at two inches and sod cut it out, and that will get rid of 99% of the problem. And you can just till right into what's left there and have very little of the rhizome reproductive part left. The only mm -hmm. negative about it is that that's the most healthy part of the soil is that top, <laughs> is that top inch and a half of soil. So you do have to turn around sure. and do the amendments that we recommend anyway, composting the rock minerals and the sugars, cornmeal and, and molasses. And I recommend doing all the stuff. The rock mm -hmm. minerals I recommend these days far above anything else are azomite and lava sand and if you are going to skip one of those skip the lava sand and go with the azomite but yeah. the other way to do it other than a sod cutter and the sod cutter does it's really hard to, to run they're very heavy and mm -hmm. uh, for a, a homeowner or a rancher <laughs> or farmer it's a lot of trouble but on the other hand, a lot of people with farms and ranches will have a tractor, and if they don't have one, rent a box scraper uh -huh. and do it. set the box scraper to scrape off inch and a half to two inches. Put that in the compost pile. That's another mistake I see people make. They think that uh, the Bermuda residue, whatever it is, can't go in the compost because it would come back and be pro a problem. But in the compost, the compost neutralizes it very well, just like oh, yeah. it does any bacterial or fungal diseases. So those are the two things that we've found work work pretty well. You're going to still have some rogue uh, mm -hmm. rhizomes left, but you're going to get 95% or more out with those two techniques. Well, that's good to know. I, I've never grown coastal. You know, back in the days when I was growing you know, hay for cattle, I was growing an annual grass. I was growing Sudan or one of those. 
but I've never grown coastal. I I would have thought the root system was deeper, but if there's that high percentage of it up in the surface layer of the soil, really, that makes real good sense. That uh, would be a good way to do it. And if you're growing coastal, you probably have pretty deep soil to begin with, so uh, chances are you can fortify and build up that layer just underneath uh, uh, a whole lot more easily. And, of course, the other thing that uh, is more of a problem here, but we don't have many big coastal fields, but uh, sod cutters do not deal with rocks very well. <laughs> I can tell you yeah, from that, my days of working on a grass farm, but if you're in deep soil, whether it's sandy or whether it's clay, sod cutter is, uh, they're, like you say, they're a bear to kind of wrestle with, but so are tillers, which I don't recommend, but uh, it's, uh, that, well, that's, I, I really appreciate that. That's uh, great knowledge to have, and I'm sure, I'm sure the caller is still listening, and he can, he can consider that and see if it's applicable in his location. We've done it quite a bit, and it works. It works pretty well. The worst thing you can do is, and you gave him good advice on that, is to <laughs> is to plow it or rototill it before you start doing something else. Because if you do that, you will have created the worst weed problem that you can imagine. Well, and you'll so have the best coastal you've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, you'll drive those rhizomes down deep, and they can come back from oh, yeah. six. Four six inches in the ground or deeper. If you do, if you cre- if you do it, if you drive them down into the ground, so yep. don't ever till first. Well, I, once again, you've got you've got the knowledge and experience that will help me in the future and help the listeners as well. So, really, really appreciate talking about that. That's great. Um. You starting to see any fall color? I was noticing driving around this week. Uh, first thing starting to turn here is the flame sumac. Just almost overnight are absolutely gorgeous. The oaks are still solid green. Most all of the uh, all of our other things, uh, even my buckeyes, which typically are starting to have good yellow this time of the year, they're still mostly green. But gosh, we've got beautiful sumac up and down the road. So I guess fall is actually going to come one of these days. Well, that's an interesting uh, comparison. I've got a, a neighbor just down the street has beautiful flame sumac, and there's not a hint of color in it at all. Really? My wow. Mexican, I was, my Mexican buckeye in the front yard is already putting on show. In fact, I mentioned it to Judy yesterday <laughs> how it was already just beginning to glow, and it's going to it's gonna knock your eyes out this year. The other thing I'm noticing across the board, and I was wondering if y'all are seeing it down there, you can really tell right now the difference. Between, a lot of people have trouble identifying the difference between Texas ash and green ash and mm-hmm. other kinds of ashes. And right now is when you can really tell the difference because the Texas ash here, all around my neighborhood, are, uh, are they've already put on a nice deep red tinge to the foliage. Huh. And when when you look at the foliage, you can see it looks a little not bad droopy, but there's it's just the char- character of the foliage on the Texas ash that it looks like it's drooping just a little bit. It's not a bad look at all. It's a good look. Uh-huh. But the green ash, Arizona ash, and other ashes, the leaflets will be more upright, and you won't see any red uh, color in the fall ever. Only color you'll see in the bat in the ash trees that I don't recommend, you don't recommend, yep. uh, will yep. be yellow. But the Texas 
ash will have beautiful reds and maroons. It'll have some yellow also. Uh-huh. It'll have some coral colors. It's one of the best fall color plants uh, that you can have. People keep giving me a hard time that I shouldn't recommend it because of the emerald ash borer, but mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to be a problem for organic people. Uh, I don't either. You have healthy soil, and if you do the sick tree treatment, even if you get it, you can get rid of it, and you can get rid of the borers in the trunk if they're active or any other borer with the orange oil. Mix it about yes. four ounces per gallon of water and paint it on or spray it on the trunk. And I, that's what I'm starting to recommend more and more on a fruit tree maintenance program because that uh, that, that more is a problem. But uh, back to the sumac, I wonder if it's a difference in moisture because uh, we're still very dry here, and um, I, that might be one of the things is. that is that's got our red colors coming out and suppressed our yellow colors so far. So interesting interesting comparison that's that's something yeah. to remember but um no i uh, i totally agree with you and i just again the organic program makes such a difference in so many ways and and orange oil once again that is just one of the most versatile useful things that we've ever discovered and, and we just keep finding more and more ways to put it to good use it is a solvent you do have to be careful with it you have to and i always tell people especially if you're combining it with uh, vinegar of any sort be sure you're wearing some eye protection because you don't want to get a lot of it on you especially in your eyes but i love the smell of it and uh um, it's just i'm amazed at how much of it we go through because we're using it for so many different things and uh the other thing that I, i we ought to talk about more frequently is um, I, we, we see a lot of people that get a problem with, uh, I call them sewer gnats, the gnats that come up out of the drains. And I had a lady tell me recently that she paid a plumber 200 bucks to come in and did not have any luck at all trying to control them. And I told her, well, put about two tablespoons of orange oil down the drain after you get through doing the dishes. And she said it kill them out the first time and they haven't come back. So the list of things you can do with orange oil is quite long. Yeah, that's a good tip. I need to add that to the uh, pest control part of the book. I tell you, the book is uh, still going to be done, but it's <laughs> it's taking longer than I thought because I keep adding stuff to it, and the, yep. the pest control part of it is going to be the coolest part because I put the diseases and the insects all together. Uh-huh. And you go down, and there's a thumbnail of whatever it is, you know, ranging from uh, – uh, aphids to fasciation or whatever it galls anything and even some beneficial things and identify that it's not a, a problem and then out beside the thumbnail photographs it identifies what it is and then uh, recommends the uh, the solution to it and well, I'll that... add that orange oil for the uh, the sink gnats that's a good tip to give everybody well, then it just it smells so much better. <laughs> it's it it it's my it's it's a room freshener for me. But uh, I was going to ask about illustrations. I, I you have such an incredible uh, collection of pictures over the years. We saw see in all your books, but uh, so the new book is going to be fairly well illustrated, especially I would think in the insect and disease section because that's 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 the primary thing that people want to use to identify you know, insects are a problem, and uh, 
Are, are you going to put some, I, I trust you're planning to put some photographs on some of the beneficials along with the problems in there. Yeah, there's a whole chapter on, on them, too, in this same area. I'm going through all the pests, and then after that, there's a list of the most common beneficials, starting with a thumbnail photograph, mm -hmm. and then out beside it explaining uh, what uh, what you're looking at in the thumbnail. And I, I had originally separated the diseases and the insects, mm -hmm. but I decided that in a lot of cases, when you look at a plant problem, uh, the uh, four-line plant bug is a perfect example of that. That's a beautiful little stink bug. It has a right. red belly. Yeah. It's kind of a hit-and-run artist. It uh, normally is underneath the leaves. But on the, the damage that it makes on leaves looks like disease. Uh -huh. And so I thought that it would be best for me just to mix all the, the pests, whether it's an insect or disease, together. The, that little plant bug, it's, um, I've got... I think we have pictures of both in the Texas uh, bug book, but sometimes on plants like the uh, Israeli sage, mm -hmm. the damage is, is manila-colored spots. And it doesn't look uh -huh. like insect damage. It looks like disease. But on basil, they're black, <laughs> totally solid black, and it's the same insect doing the, the damage, but it... it manifests completely different in how it looks on the plant depending on what the plant is. That's interesting. I'll bet the same is true of lace bug. That's another one that we get a lot of people confusing, uh, thinking that they've got some sort of fungus or something going on when it's lace bug damage uh, on lantanas and things like that. So, yeah. Anyway, well, I it's think... rocking along. This is the only book I've ever done. It started out as a pamphlet, then it became a booklet, <laughs> then it became a small book, and now it's becoming a big book. So we'll, we'll, <laughs> it, 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 if given the amount of time, and, and that's a tough thing, too, because you could think of new things for years to add to it, to make it bigger and better, and it could be a multi-volume work, but... There's also the need out there. People need good, accurate information, which is so hard to come by in today's world. So uh, uh, you have to combine wanting to put everything in the world in there with the need to go to press, so to speak. So uh, uh, is this is is this going to go through uh, one of the UT presses, or is this going to be self-published, so to speak? No, it's going to be self-published with uh, one of my advertisers here, unless they choke when they see how big I've made it and decide that they, want to, they uh, want to do other things. But it's going to be uh, it's going to be kind of fun. One of the you know you can find all this information on the uh, on the internet, but on the other hand, and you talk about this all the time, you can go to the internet and try to find something, and you can find just as bad an information as just as good information. Depending on where you look, you got to be able to, to interpret which uh, information on the internet you should be listening to, and which well, is, is baloney. And there's it, sometimes it's kind of hard to decipher. Well, I think it's real easy. You just go to dirtdoctor.com and you find good information. And the majority, and I tell people that the internet can be useful for identifying things, but stop there. Look at the picture and figure out what it is because. Yeah. The advice is just invariably bad, and it might be right for if you live in Philadelphia or, you know, maybe Seattle, you, you might get some good cultural information for there, 
But we in Texas, uh, whether it's the Metroplex where you are or whether it's South Texas where I am, we're just in our own little world, and what works in other parts of the country just will not work here. So, uh, I, I truly, it's it's a daily thing sending people to DirtDoctor.com for reliable information, and uh, it discourages me. And I know why people do it because so few places, even nurseries and things, there there are a lot of plant stores, not very many nurseries left anymore, but. I see people walking through our place with their phone in hand trying to look up something about a plant. I say, don't ask your phone, ask us. But uh, golly, you know, just the simple things of how much light and how big it gets and all, just invariably what you pull up on the Internet is probably not going to be right. Well, I use it, but, but I know I know what to believe and what not not to believe. And, and you're right; it's interesting how much how much volume there is about uh, plants on the internet, and not much uh, identifying them and talking about their life cycles and that sort of thing pretty well. But very little information on how to uh, how to manage them, what to do. Yeah. Uh, starting yeah. to be more and more. In fact, I, I, I chuckle. A lot of times I'll look up, somebody will send me a strange uh, photograph. I got the strangest one I've ever got in my life, I'll tell you about in a second, Today, uh, a couple of days ago. But people will send me these photographs and ask me to identify them, and they'll be weirdly shot. And I'll, I'll, find, the inform- I'll find what it is on the Internet, and then uh-huh. I'm always curious to look at the additional uh, images that are related. And mm-hmm. always there'll be images out of the Texas bug book and my other systems. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm looking at somebody else's information. But anyway, yep. the weirdest one I've ever gotten, I got two days ago for identification, and believe it or not, I'll send you a copy of it. It's a red, kind of a coral red, uh, Katie did. I mm. mean, it's just bright coral red, the entire body. And I kind of, it's a, pretty good shot and I tried to enlarge it and see if it looked like you know paint had been splashed on it or something like that and not at all it's just a red Katie did have you ever seen anything like that no I haven't but I've seen and you and I have both uh, as Jimmy Buffett would say we've made several trips around the sun but I am seeing bugs and odd forms that I have never seen before and I started gardening with my grandfather when I was five years old and but between some different butterflies, some different moths, a handful of things that I really have no idea what they are. This has been a year of just bizarre things in the garden. Yeah, I'm seeing some beautiful butterflies as well. And that mystery hornet that I told you about <laughs> at our yeah. door of my office that got me twice. A couple of things on it. One, I finally got a close enough, a close enough shot to see that it definitely is not the Texas yellow jacket. It's it's darker. The yellow stripes are a darker color. The body is a little wider. And so the people that suggested it might be a European hornet mm-hmm. that's come in probably is pretty close to right, but it's a little different. It, they're kind of kind of killed them out yet. I've been, uh, tr- you know, tiptoeing around and trying to yeah. pictures of the entrance and the huge number of them that I'm seeing. But the stings that I got, the two stings that I got, and now it's been two or three weeks, the one on my arm is still sore a little bit. 
Wow. It's really interesting. The uh, the comfrey helped it greatly, you know, the main part of the thing. Mm-hmm. But I was just noticing this morning I was rubbing on it, and it's still kind of a little deep, dull pain there from that little beast. Well, you're identifying another big issue we're going to have is uh, letting people know the difference in the you know, little paper wasps we get up that are the yellow jackets, which are highly beneficial. They're just yeah. so good at controlling the webworms and so many of the caterpillars. And just unfortunately, there are a lot of people that look out there and say, wasp is bad, kill it. And uh, it sounds like these guys are superficially similar. And um, uh, just uh, uh, just the reason we have so many of the caterpillar problems in the summer was, in my opinion, the advent of the aerosol wasp sprays, which have made it so easy for people to, you know, kill the nests that are up underneath the eaves in places where we've got docile wasps that are never going to bother you unless you're up there poking at them or something like that. But it sounds like this guy is aggressive and uh, uh, certainly not anything we want to deal with. So we're going to have to, we're going to have to, talk a lot about the beneficial yellow jackets uh, when we're talking about this destructive one or they're this painful damaging one and be sure that people don't get in the mood of just you know if it's a wasp kill it because there's so many good wasps out there well the only time i've ever been stung by the dangerous hornets the texas yellow jacket stuck a shovel down into their hive and that, that uh-huh. made them mad and then this time i stepped right on the entrance to the hive you can mm-hmm. walk up real close to them, and they're not—they're swarming around a little bit, but they're not that uh, aggressive. And the paper wasp, uh, unless you bump into it hard or really threaten it, it's yeah. going to leave you alone. And it's totally different. Real thin little waist. Uh-huh. These guys have a fat, have a wide—they're kind of wide all the way down. I'll—we'll uh, be doing a, you know a whole uh, uh, site entry on the site about it as soon as we get a little bit more definite information about it. Uh, it sounds like we we just might need an entry in the, in that book that we were just talking about. Yep. <laughs> it uh, would be, and that's that's the hard thing. That's a good thing about DirtDoctor.com is you can update it constantly. Once the book goes to press, all those things we think of that you would like to have put in there, they're just going to have to wait for the next book. Yeah, that's why it's taken so long. Well, we'll uh, chat more about this wonderful world of nature and landscaping and stuff maybe next time. I think we just ought to plan on it next Saturday, and uh, I'm going to send you a humorous photograph. It's not, it's not a, a great one, but uh, I'm, I'm looking after uh, a golden retriever this weekend, and she was sitting beside me here, and I just reached over and put the second set of headphones on her and uh, makes a pretty good picture if you blow it up just a little bit. And she has a, a very serious look on her face like she's really concentrating on the collar. So I'll send you something to smile at in a few minutes. And uh, in the meantime, you guys stay safe, get out and enjoy, and uh, we'll look forward to doing it again next week, Howard. Thanks again for everything. Enjoy those healthy gardens. I'll see you later. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, Howard. Goodbye. Mr. Howard Garrett is the Dirt Doctor. DirtDoctor.com truly is the best website on the Internet out there, and uh, it's it's information that is very, very applicable here. Um, Don't think you're going to go through it very quickly because there's just an immense amount of information there, but I think you'll find good answers to lots and lots of different problems. Uh, Let's get a break out of the way, and uh, we'll go on with more gardening. 
South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. The following program is recorded and aired on previous dates. All right. Well, back to gardening. Don tells me we don't have any calls right this second. So uh, you know the number if you want to get through. Time for probably one or two more callers because I do have to get another break in. But I do, I am glad this gives me a chance to talk about a couple of things. Uh, first of all, how important fertilizing is. Your fall feeding is just your most important of the year. It's going to make your plants more cold-hardy for the winter months, plus it's going to let them store the nutrient they need. People think, oh, I'll feed in the spring when plants are starting to come back into growth. Well, it takes a while for a plant to process that nutrient or for the microbes in the soil to process the nutrient. So feeding in the fall is actually what supports really good spring growth. So it's just so important. Grass, trees, shrubs, everything. And if you have plants that are what I would call half-hardy plants that may suffer some cold damage from bougainvillea to esperanza to lots of different things out there, this is an important time of year to be spraying frequently every week or two with liquid seaweed because that's also going to uh, improve their cold hardiness. If you try to squeeze as much as you can out of your peppers and tomatoes and eggplants, if you've been spraying with seaweed and continue, it will also many times help them get through that first freeze or two so that you get longer-term production. Anyway, just hard to overemphasize the importance of that. The other thing is this is such a good time for adding color to the yard. If you've got sunny areas, pansies and Johnny Jump Ups, they're going to bloom every day of the winter for you. And then the other beautiful things like petunias and stock and dianthus and, oh, the list just goes on and on. Snapdragons, those things are going to bloom beautifully through the fall, grow through the winter, and then bloom beautifully again in the spring for you. And if you have shady areas, the cyclamen are so outstanding. We got a huge shipment of them a couple of days ago. Some new colors that I hadn't seen before, some new uh, kind of two-tone varieties. And uh, once again, probably your best source of annual color, that along with ornamental kale and cabbage for foliage color that you can be putting out. And uh, if you're looking to have your yard in great shape for Thanksgiving, that's just a little over two weeks away. So don't put it off to the last minute. This would be a great weekend to start getting those beds looking uh Really, really good before the Thanksgiving holiday gets here. Uh, Don, let's go ahead. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and do uh, my last commercial so we get that last break out of the way. And then either I've got more things to talk about or we do have time for just one or two more calls. And South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, very good. Looks like we've got time for about two more callers in the show, and they are going to be Robin and Arthur. Uh, good morning, Robin. Good morning, Bob. I have not been able to find in my notes your formula for the cornmeal uh, for using it for, is it fungus in the grass? It can be used a number of ways, and of course it's not the whole ground cornmeal that does the magic, it's the beneficial fungus called trichoderma that grows on the cornmeal. So the two ways, easiest way to do it is just get your bag of whole ground cornmeal and go out and just kind of sprinkle it lightly over the area where you have the fungal problem. Uh, I guess technically you'd probably use about a pound of cornmeal for maybe 
oh, 20 or 30 square feet, and you can just sprinkle it around. Now, if you're out in the country and you have problems with hogs or raccoons, sometimes you don't want to be putting cornmeal on the ground. So in that case, we just soak it in water. We put about two cups of uh, cornmeal to a five-gallon bucket of water, and then we can either pour that around or spray that around anywhere we have a problem, and that seems to be much less attractive to the critters but uh makes no difference. It works equally well either way. Okay. Do possums like cornmeal also? <clears throat> Not so much. Possums are more fruit eater, bug eater, meat eater. They're they're omnivores, they eat a lot of different things, but I've never seen them really be attracted to uh cornmeal and with raccoons it's a minimal problem, uh, but a real issue with deer and wild hogs. Okay. I had a possum digging in my in my plant pot, my oh. cilantro plant pot the other day. I couldn't believe it in broad daylight. Yeah, and they're probably looking for caterpillars or looking for earthworms. They eat all those things. And uh, uh, your pots just happen to be the most moist, good soil where they figured they'd find dinner. It's too hard. You know, they, they don't want to be digging in that dried-up old ground out there with the drought we're in. So uh, Robin's pots uh, seem like a pretty good target. If you want to really slow them down, most of these critters hate the smell of blood meal. And blood meal is pretty good fertilizer. Mm-hmm. Just pick up a little bag of blood meal at, the, uh, uh, at your nursery or garden center and uh, sprinkle that around, and that will probably keep them away. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. You do the same, sir. Thank you. Goodbye. All right. Well, this in a minute here. Um, once again, enchilada dinner up in Candelia at the Volunteer Fire Department, 285-0015. Don't know if tickets are still available. You can also go to www.hangar. Um, listen, it's been fun being with you today. Get out and enjoy this beautiful day. 